chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. I know in your bulletin it says 31, and I know in the uh, drawing it says 31. We're going to go all the way through 39, just because I want to. So, um, let's go. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So we come to this passage, and it's... It's really unsettling uh, for those of us who have any sort of doctrinal background, any sort of theological understanding. These passages, in particular this one and chapter 6 of Hebrews, are unsettling 
because of the way that they land. They land that way on purpose. It's not an accident. The author of Hebrews is not theologically in conflict with the rest of the Bible. Just let's get that out of the way right now. He's he's not in conflict. That's a, a it's a non sequitur. It doesn't actually fit. If you read it, it's not it's not there. So when you read through Hebrews and you come to these warnings, the author's intention is that they would land on you, and when they land on you, you would be a little uncomfortable. That's the author's intention. That these things would land on you and you'd go, whoa, whoa, that doesn't make me feel comfortable. But it is intended to drive you to faithful obedience to the word of God. That's the goal. That these passages would drive you to faithful obedience to God's word. So just a reminder of where we are last week. We talked about specifically verses 26 through 31 and that warning. And we reminded ourselves of the three let us that come before. Right? The three let us that come before are verse 22. Let us draw near, which the word draw near, remember, is very closely related to the word pray. So it's this idea that you would pray, draw near in spirit to God. So let us draw near. And not draw near. Uh, let's draw near with confidence, not with a uh, not with hesitancy, but that we would draw near with boldness and confidence, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. The second, let us there is let us hold fast to our confession with with <coughs> with our confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. So we hold fast to the confession of our hope that Jesus Christ is Savior, Lord, and He's coming back. And he's going to take us, he's going to rescue us, he's going to set everything right. The world is going to be set right by him. And we do that because why? He is faithful. Not because we are faithful, not because I'm good enough. I didn't make the team. This was not a tryout. We come before God with confidence and prayer and faith privately, internally. This is our individual act. And then we come what outwardly, we come with what we are feeding ourselves, the hope of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of who he is, clinging to our confession of faith, which is done in community. And then here, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then we do this together. We do this together. Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. It is not done in a vacuum. You do this with each other. Christianity is done Together. And so then the urging comes right after that. Do not neglect gathering together. He is specifically talking. I just want to be clear. He's specifically talking about this kind of gathering. This kind. Yeah. This one. This kind. Right now. So kudos to all of you who are here. Like this, He's talking about this kind of gathering. A gathering together of believers to worship together. He's not talking about one-on-ones. That's done. That's holding your confession tight. That's clean to your confession. He's not talking about going out to get pie together or coffee. He's not talking about that. He's talking about this. This corporate setting where we are gathering together in worship. This is the most common gathering of Christianity 
since its inception. This gathering. We do it on Sunday. And if you do any church historical studies, you realize they did that because it's the first day of the week. And they wanted to start their day off with it. And they called it the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day. So every time you met together, you were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why they started it on Sundays and not Saturdays. They're differentiating themselves from the synagogues and the Jews. A lot of them were still going to synagogue at the time when they started. But they did a Christian gathering on Sundays. Like this is one of the first things that was incepted in Christianity. It's the longest standing gathering we have. That's what he's talking about. Yay! So, all that was review. Now let's get into this. For if we go on sinning deliberately... So, having said these three things that we're supposed to let us, these lettuces that we're supposed to take into ourselves, these uh, things we're supposed to do, having said these things, he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, He says, this next warning is, if we go on sinning deliberately, if we make a practice of sinning in our lives, and deliberately, willfully reject Jesus, after having received the knowledge of the truth. This is a thorough knowledge. The word here for knowledge is epignosis. Epignosis. It's a thorough knowledge, a complete knowledge of the subject. It is a thorough understanding. There's no way around this word. You can't dance around it. You can't say, well, the guy didn't quite get it. No, the author of Hebrews is saying, if you have a full understanding of God, and you go on sinning against him, deliberately, willfully making a practice of sin against you, against him, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So let's unpack that first. If you go on sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, you are not covered. That, everyone in the room... Just imagine, you're Hebrews, you're hearing this letter read out loud by the author, whoever wrote it, you know, um, and they say this line, everyone in the room ought to be a little fearful. Oh no. And all of a sudden, if you're like me, you go, okay, so what am I, what are, what are the things I'm struggling with, Where are they, what are they, are these deliberate, are they, are they things, am I, is this me, because this is me, I'm in trouble if this is me. Immediately, that's the response. There's no sacrifice for sin. So you're done. And it says, in in place of the sacrifice, there's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Remember what Romans says, we who were once enemies of God. That's who we were. That's who people who reject Christ are. They're enemies, (laughs) adversaries. And for them, for adversaries, there is burning fire. Eternal burning fire. 
That's intense and terrifying. And we ought to have pity on those who match this description. And if we match this description, we ought to repent and trust in Jesus and be saved. Repent and trust in Jesus and be saved. So, verse 26 and 27 gives us this picture of what we call theologically apostate. The person who has seen Christ rejected and walked away. That's the apostate. The definition of apostate or apostasy is an intentional withdrawal or defection from something. An intentional withdrawal or defection from something. So it's turning your hand away and intentionally saying, I don't want it, I won't take it, and go in the other direction. That's what apostasy is. Somebody who has been on this path and then goes, I don't want it. I intentionally see what it is. I've recognized it for what it is. And I am saying, I don't want it. And I'm walking away. That's apostasy. That's the definition of of apostasy. Now, people who move toward this is people who move towards truth and then intentionally reject it. The truth here as referenced up above in verse 26 is a full knowledge after receiving a knowledge of the truth, a complete and thorough knowledge. So they are they are seeing the truth and they are hearing the truth and they are it is it is being understood in their head. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. This is being understood. It is being grasped. And the truth then, here by this person, is abandoned or rejected. So, why why does it matter that we understand apostasy? Why does it matter that we at SGF understand apostasy? Because uh, you're here on Sunday at worship, not neglecting the gathering together of saints, you're not apostate. You're not. Um, you have you are you are at worst investigating, but more than likely you have seen the resurrected Christ and you know him and you are following it. You're not apostate. So so for you, why does it matter that we understand this, that we grasp this? Well. I think it's important that we grasp this because the world is moving from apathetic indifference to Christian thought to the idea that Christianity is dangerous and immoral. The, mo- the majority of conversations I have with my educated friends nowadays is not whether or not um, they want to deny morality, but how dare you Christians attack other people and their moral sensibilities. And it's immoral for you to tell a woman that she should care for her child when she cannot or it is inconvenient for her and that she shouldn't abort. It's immoral for you to say that you, that that choice is wrong. It's her choice. It's not yours. It's immoral to say to somebody else that their monogamous homosexual relationship is somehow wrong. It's immoral to teach someone to fish. Is immoral if you have the fish to give them. These are the 
realities that we live in nowadays. Fifty years ago, this wasn't the case. Fifty years ago, we would see a discussion go much more, Christianity holds this moral high ground, and everybody else is kind of pushing aside, going, I don't want your morality. But now, the discussion has become, Christianity is immoral. And this is the moral high ground. So it's important that you understand apostasy. Because you're about to see a lot of it in the world. You're going to see a lot of it in the next ten years. The Northeast is already going the way of Europe, where they have started to reject the idea of moral principles altogether. And they've gone beyond postmodernism. So much so that you walk into a church, and it is rare to find a church that will teach basic Christian morality. Churches. It's rare to find a church that will teach it. So we are in the midst of a place where this is much more insidious and dangerous than we think. So it's important that we understand this what the author of Hebrews is describing. Because you're about to watch a lot of it. So, this is much more insidious than we once believed. Now, there is a pastor who gives uh, six reasons for apostasy. And I found these helpful. There are some uh, examples in scripture that he uses to give them to you. So I'll write them off. You can write them down if you want to. But one of the reasons for apostasy is persecution. People don't bear up under persecution, and that's in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 10. Another one is false teachers. You see that in Matthew 24, 11, and in 2 Timothy 4, 3. Another one is temptation of the world. You see that with Demas in 2 Timothy 4, 10. Then neglect is another one. You saw that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Let us not neglect our faith, but rather stay in the middle. Stay on the, on the, in the stream of the gospel, uh, religion and religious order, um, and an obsession with religious activity is another reason people apostatize. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, I would also throw in there the legalist in Galatians. Um, and then forsaking Christian fellowship, of course, is a reason that people apostatize, and, and that's just one verse before in chapter 10, verse 25 of Hebrews. I would also add that um, there is a treating of the sacred in the people who apostatize. There is a treating of sacred things as casual, often. There's a treating of sacred things as casual. So those are six possible reasons for apostasy. But just think for a minute about people who you have known in time that have, that have seemed to do this. I know it, I've seen it, I lived it for a while, don't want it. They've walked away. I have a particular friend who I taught the word to, who went on mission trips with me, who worked with me, who labored with me, who we battled with. Who has done this? 
I still hold out hope. And I still minister to him every time I talk to him. But I can't help but feel what this author's talking about. I can't help it. You see, because we got three options here when we read this. We can either say, well, Christians never do this, and it's not, a Christian doesn't apostatize, and so this is hyperbole. You know, we can say that, and you wouldn't be wrong. Theologically, Christians can't apostatize because what's the measure of a Christian? Well, do they make it? Well, if they make it, they're Christian and they didn't apostatize, right? So, so you're not wrong, and yet, I don't think that's what the author intends for you to feel. Then you got a second option, which is, well, this isn't hyperbole, but we don't want to overread it, and what the author is doing is warning the believers to stay faithful, and he's telling you, uh, that there are people who will do this and they literally can reject salvation and walk away from it having received it. Theologically, that's incompatible with other parts of Scripture. Theologically, it's incompatible with other parts of Hebrews. So we look at that and we kind of go, well, no, that's not a good reading of this. Then there's the third reading, which is the one I'm telling you, where you've got a brother or a friend who you've walked with and they've been in church with you, and they've been faithful, and you've seen them grow, and you thought they knew Jesus, and then at some point they went, I want nothing to do with that, and started walking away for whatever reason. Whether it's this asymmetrical morality issue that, that I mentioned earlier, where the world is going, you're immoral, or and I can't be this anymore, or whether it's that they never knew, whatever it is, they throw their hand up, and they walk away, and they deliberately sin against the living God, knowing, knowing this. i got to believe that's where the Hebrew author is. That's where this guy is. That's what he is talking about. He has seen men like Demas, who have rejected the work of Christ for the sake of worldly desire. So the, the question is, theologically, told you we we're going to deal with theological implications, can a Christian be apostate? In one sense, no. Just throw that out there. In one sense, no. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39, all the Father gives him will come to him, and he will not cast any of them out. He keeps them, John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they come, none can snatch them from my hand, that includes the sheep themselves. Ephesians 1, you were predestined before the foundations of the earth. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 1 John, really the whole book, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 29 and 3, verse uh, 4 through 10, we don't make a practice of sinning. This phrase, deliberately sinning against God, is not a description of a Christian in Scripture. We don't make a practice of, scripture, of, of sinning. We have been changed. You don't grant regeneration and salvation to yourself. You cannot take it away from yourself. So in one very true sense, using Scripture and reading the Bible, we can see, no, a Christian cannot apostate. Cannot be apostate. It is not possible. In another very real sense, yes. 
First John chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us that it would be plain that they were not of us. Meaning they were never of us. They were not, they were not Christian, but they looked an awful lot like it. And we walked with them, and they were friends, and it hurts to watch them go. And so what do we do? We hold out hope that the call to repentance will be answered, and they will repent and believe. My friend that I was telling you about, I have coffee with him every chance I get. I call him on the phone every time I feel like there's an opening. I share the gospel with him, and every time it's rejected. But I will continue to do it until the day I die or he dies. Because Christ has borne up love in me, and I can do no other. Oh, I don't want to. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a glutton for self-punishment. I don't necessarily enjoy defending myself to an amoral, can't say those words out loud. I don't enjoy arguing with a guy that used to hold the same views I do, who in many ways is smarter than I am, but remains a fool. Don't enjoy those things. It's not, it's not like I'm enjoying this kind of back and forth. But I have seen him do this to the cross and turn to deliberately sin. And I know that the action that he is doing will lead him down to fire and fury. And I have love for him. And not just fire and fury, but divine punishment and fire and fury. Because if you broke the law and were punished, how much worse is it when you deny grace? That's the point of the author of Hebrews in verse 28 through 30 there. How much more, how much worse is it for one who, if one who breaks the law is stoned to death, how much worse is it for the one who sees grace and goes, I don't want it? How much worse is it for him? So in a very real sense, yes, this person exists. Demas went out from them in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. If you did our Acts study with us, you know Demas was a pretty, pretty tough guy. And he was involved in the ministry with Paul. So great was he in the ministry of Paul and so involved that Paul left him in a city as one of the pastors at one point. Paul, what Paul would do is he'd go to a city, he'd start doing ministry in that city, and then he'd need to go to another one. So he'd leave two people, and then he'd go. And those two people would stay there, coordinate and build the church, and then they'd come to meet with Paul once that church had been built. Demas was left in one. He was given charge. And he then rejects it and says, I don't want it. I don't want this. The Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, do, are warned that the same thing's going to happen. Wolves are going to rise up from within you, from your own number, from among you. Wolves are going to rise up. You see our perspective here. They look like Christians who then have turned their back to God and have decided to deliberately chase sin. They look like Christians. I, I would admonish you, it never got there. 
Because what we know from Scripture is Christians persevere. That's a, that's a character trait of Christians. They persevere. So if somebody doesn't persevere, they're not living up to a character trait of Christianity. Which means they weren't one. They went out from us that it would be proved that they're not of us. So in a very real sense, no, a Christian cannot apostate. Not truly. But in a very real sense, yes, we see it all the time. We see people who look like they have embraced the call to Christ and then have turned their back and gone on to sin against God. They have decided the law and sin is better, and they will be led to death. So, again, this matters for you because the world is moving in a different direction than it used to used to be that we held the moral high ground. Now we are the ones being called immoral. I pray fervently that as you begin to see this shift, you would recognize it for the opportunity that it is. My friend, I sat with, I talked to him, and he told me I'm the most genuine cardboard sandwich board holding nutcase he's ever met. Because every time he talks to me, he feels like I'm the guy holding the end time sign. We're all going to die! Repent! Because I am. I just don't have the money to buy a cardboard sign. I'm just kidding. I, I wouldn't mind. I got an extra. But we stand in front of these people who are calling us immoral, and I pray that your response would be, if that's morality, then I am immoral. If what you're describing as morality is morality, then you're right. I'm a nutcase. I'm crazy. But I'm going to own it because it's true. And if you don't hear me tell you to repent and believe in Jesus, then hell awaits. My prayer is that you would have that same fervor that I do. And that when you meet with these people who you know have matched the description of one who has spurned Christ, that you would turn and call them to repent in the hopes that Jesus would move in their heart and save them. Because while the author of Hebrews is describing somebody that is utterly lost. Jesus Christ is really big. And I have a lot of hope. Because I cling to the confession of my hope that he saves. And he saved me. And I am rotten. So I know he can save others. So, now in contrast to the apostate, we have verse 32 and following, and we're just going to cover a couple of these quickly. But recall the former days, so these, these Hebrews that he's urging to remain faithful, he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggles with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Just for a second, listen to that. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. 
You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. A bunch of people came into your house, took all your stuff, and you were like, Yay! <laughs> Woohoo! Because it was accepted with joy. This is a weird thing to say, right? Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he calls you and he says, Look, you struggled when you were saved. He's telling these these people he's writing to, the Hebrews he's writing to, when you got saved, you were persecuted out the gate. Now, I know we don't share this same experience, but hear what they were talking about. When a Jew became a Christian in the first century, they lost a lot. They lost a ton. They were Stuff was taken from them. Their families rejected them. They were turned on by the community. They were often completely ostracized. So they struggled. And what was their response to that struggle? Verse 34, you had compassion. Their response to the struggle was to go, I've struggled too. And they gave compassion to those in prison and those who were persecuted. They gave compassion. So when they were persecuted and struggling, their response, the response of a believer was compassion. So when the adversary shot darts at them, of struggling, persecution, and trouble, and circumstantial trouble. They turned around and gave compassion to others. Then, you see, they had reproach, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And look at what they said. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. An insane thing to say that somebody does. So people stole your stuff and you went, woohoo! I suffering! Yeah! Woohoo! <laughs> so, so they joyfully accept reproach and shame. And people scolding and persecuting, taking their things, they, they respond in joy. A Christian feels the darts of the enemy come in the form of reproach, and it turns into joy. Boy, it must frustrate the adversary when we do that. Can you imagine? He gets mad and is like, I'm going to take all his stuff. And you're like, yes! <laughs> this is crazy. You can't, you understand what it means when we say he can't overcome us. The adversary can't defeat us. This is why. Because they plunder your stuff and Christian response is, Yes! I'm suffering for Jesus. What joy this is. What great great joy this is. It's know Christ all the more. Then you see here at the end is, Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. So they take all your stuff and you lose everything. And you are filled with what? Hope. Hope that you have a better possession and a more abiding one, an eternal possession, an eternal reward. I sat with some people just this week and talked to them about considering your wealth on this earth and trying to recognize how you can exchange it for eternal goods, for eternal rewards. What does Jesus say when he talks about the parable of the dishonest manager? Use your unrighteous wealth on this earth for eternal rewards. Use it for eternity. For this is where glory 
is. We use it for eternity. So he says here, we, when we have loss fired at us, we hope. And he says, do not give a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So we have need for what? Endurance. We want to press through. We are not those who reject the cross. We are those who run to it, who embrace it, and then live with it, and find life in it. And when we, when we are embracing the cross as we are Christian, when struggles come, we ought to respond in compassion. When reproach comes, we ought to respond in joy. When loss comes, we ought to respond in hope. And hope of what? Hope of the future. Knowing full well that our God will return. And that's these last verses that he concludes this passage with in chapter 10. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in them. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So when Jesus comes back, the world will shrink in fear of judgment. But not us. Not us. When Jesus comes back, we will, with arms up, eyes open, probably tears, we we'll rejoice in the coming of our King. We will see Him and rejoice in Him. You have hope. There's hope for you. And oh, this world that claims the moral high ground over us now, irrationally so, this world that has backward everything, this world that is infecting everything around us. This sinful world will be set right because our King will return and He will make it right. And what a day of rejoicing that will be for us. What a day of joy that will be for those of us who have faith and preserve our souls.